Well, good morning, Calvary family. What a joy it is to gather to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords together. And uh, this is a really special Sunday in the life of our church. At the end of the service, we're going to be hearing the testimonies of faith of those whom the Lord has saved by grace. And we also have the installation service this morning for Pastor David Kanaversky, who has come to us to serve as our senior associate pastor. And this is an answer to a long time of prayer from the congregation and uh, from the elders and the staff. And so we're so excited that the Lord has brought Pastor David to us. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, just serving uh, the Lord together in the years to come. Doing the commissioning uh, message this morning is uh, someone from my alma mater and, and uh, from David's from the Master Seminary, Dr. Michael Grassani. He is a professor of Old Testament at Master's, and uh, he is writing a book right now on the history of Israel, and tonight he's going to be speaking on biblical archaeology, so make sure you come back tonight to hear Dr. Uh, Grassanti uh, on biblical archaeology. Uh, but he's going to come and do a commissioning uh, message, not only for Pastor David, but for us as a congregation. So, Dr. Sani, thank you so much uh, for being here with us this morning. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning. Hope you all are doing well and rejoicing in God's goodness. I'm grateful to be here and honored. Besides loving David and Aaron and their family, uh, privileged to be part of this. I'm grateful, care for local churches, lighthouses, different parts of the world where we have leaders and people lend their shoulder to the task of being a, a light in a desperately needy world. So praise God for that and keep your eyes on him and serve him well as you impact your part of the vineyard and four corners of the world. So I'm grateful that in his providence that the Lord led the leadership of Calvary and David and Aaron in their hearts to bring them here to Calvary Bible. My family uh, has had a deep relationship with the Kanaverskis for over 25 years. They've been very patient. <laughs> no, uh, no, just it's a blessing how God has helped us connect in different ways at different times. And I'm thrilled to bring a message here at a solid church, as well as an exhortation to my dear brother, David. So besides the blessing of what today is, which I'm totally excited about, I wanna turn our thoughts to what we're gonna look at today in this idea of two core values that we need to pursue. We're all thankful as Christ followers for the salvation God has provided for us. He, through that salvation, has poured into our lives both infinite and eternal blessings, transforming our lives. He's given us his word to be our absolute authority, our daily guide for every realm of life. And it should be obvious that God's value system should be the guide for our core values, what determines, what are our building block values. And um, I understand that there's a lot, the Bible says about actions, to-dos, to-don'ts, concrete actions that are part of his plan. God, in calling us to be a witness of his character and his salvation, it, it, he wants concrete actions. He wants us to live in a way that points to him. But I'm going to, this morning, not downplaying actions, look at core values. 
and they aren't more or less important. Both have a value in, in God's sight, but the biblical values provide the right foundation for biblical action. A life that makes God big, a life that demonstrates his amazing character to those around us, starts on the inside, in our hearts. Our core values shape our actions. So in today's message, I wanna share with you two foundational character traits, biblical values, that need to be very high on our list of core values, things that we should want to make sure we're cultivating in our lives. They provide the foundation, the building blocks, the impetus for God-glorifying conduct. These biblical values that we should in, are things that we should intentionally and consistently pursue and cultivate. And you won't be totally shocked. In fact, you're gonna think, oh, that's old news. I wanna talk about humility and dependence. Now, like you realize, you've heard that before. What I wanna do is just remind you and David of that and the essential nature of living that out to have a life that shines for his glory that demonstrates to each other nearby and the world around us his surpassing character. So in order to pursue lives that advertise our awesome God surpassing character to all of those around us, that is, have, have lives that make an eternal difference, we need to keep growing in the way our lives and hearts manifest humility and dependence. And we're going to start by paying attention to who God is and what he does, God's example. And why? Because I want us to see how God's example should motivate and enable us to embrace these key values. He wants us to know who he is and what he does because he understands that that's absolutely essential for us to be pushed and motivated to live that life he set before us. Now this is an odd sermon for me because normally I would teach or preach out of a passage and we're gonna look at a bunch of passages. And uh, hold on to your seats. What I want you to say, I sent an outline that you can get if you want with all the passages listed in it with the main outline points. You can ask the secretary for it. If you want to just go through those passages and, and hear them again. So what I want you to do in this sermon is to take a chill pill and don't get frustrated if you can't make it to the passage before I read it. But I do want you to hear. We're going to see a bunch of passages with some comments interspersed. I want you to hear the message of those passages and feel the weight of their truth. So, and you might be wondering why am I preaching a message like this today? I mean, isn't this Dave's day? Installation of Dave, it's God's day, but at the beginning of his ministry at Calvary Bible. Yes, yes, but I, I'm doing this because I know I need this and I'm absolutely convinced that these values are totally essential for effective ministry and God honoring relationships, I see this Emphasis is important for my beloved friend. And I have you brothers and sisters in mind, in mind as well. What I have to say this morning is relevance to each Christ follower here today, including me. At times, I'm going to focus on Pastor David, and you're free to listen in, because it's for you too. So my dear friend and brother David, through our years of friendship, you've demonstrated a pattern of being humble as well as being dependent on our great God. You've been an encouragement to me as I've sought to grow in those areas as well. Regardless, here's the challenge both of us face. 
on this side of heaven will never arrive at perfect Christ-likeness. I don't know about you, but God is always re-enrolling me in the course of Humility and Dependence 101. I haven't graduated yet. So this is my exhortation and encouragement for you today. In order for you to flourish in ministry and marriage in this phase of your life, seek to keep growing in your dependence on and humility before our great and awesome God. So as we look at these truths, let's start by considering our powerful God as the totally and flawless dependable one. We're gonna look at God's example that paves the way for what he demands of us, so we will look at God's example and his expectations. God's example, the first area is he is totally powerful and strong. Lots of examples, we're gonna start in Genesis 1, but there's three of them. In Genesis 1, creation, he spoke and it happened. We jump in at verse three, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse six, God said, let there be an expanse between the water, separating water from water. So God made, and it was so. Verse nine, God said, let the water of the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Creation was not a long, drawn-out process requiring great divine effort. No, God states his intention, let it be, and makes it happen, and it was. By the way, God did not create the universe, in particular the world, in six days because he needed to take a nap at the end of the day. No, no, he's the God of all power. And on the first three days, God created the three realms of the earth, atmosphere, water, and land. And in the last three days, he fills those realms with the creatures of his creation, including the pinnacle of that creative week, mankind. And by doing it that way, not that he runs out of gas at the end of each day, by doing it that way, the God of gods methodically demonstrates his creative power and total control over every realm of the earth. He isn't a, a wimpy God, he's a totally powerful and strong God. So here's a second example, Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 35, God delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt. He sent Moses to them, performed the plagues. The Pharaoh let them go. They crossed the Red Sea, one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. They came down the wilderness and then on the way to the promised land. In Deuteronomy 4, it's a sermon Moses preaches to God's people to challenge them with the means by which they can live the lofty life he set before them, and that would be to understand that they have an incomparable God. In 32 to 35, he, he wants them to think about the significance of what he's done. Verse 32, indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you from the day that God created man on the earth, from one end of hev the heavens to the other. So ask all time, the entire universe. It's the research project of cosmic proportions. Here's the question. Is anything like this great event ever happened or has anything like it been heard of? By the way, all these questions demand a no answer. And what's the great event in the context that's obvious that God is saying is, has any God ever taken and pursued a relationship with a certain people through which you wanted to accomplish great things and impact the world? And the answer is no. There's no, no example of 
because there's no other God but him, but there's all of the alleged so-called gods are sitting on their hands. God has something he wants to accomplish. That's unique. It's unparalleled. Well, verse 33, has the people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you haven't lived? And the point isn't that have some people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire and died and you guys are lucky, you lived. No, no, he's, he's making the point that this is the only place in human history where a God, a powerful God, an acting God has spoken propositionally, objectively, clearly to help his people understand who he is and what he does and what he expects and what he will do. I mean, we can't go down this road, but in the ancient Near East, the pagan gods were worthless. I mean, in all kinds of ways. People didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know how to please them. They had no idea what to do except feed me. Be, let me be your boss. They're in the dark. But God isn't playing hide and seek with his people. He wants them to know who he is and what he does and what he expects. That's unique. So has any people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you haven't lived? No. Verse 34, have in your head God's deliverance of them out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea and so on. Has a God ever attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation, a powerful nation, one of the most powerful empires of the world? Has, he, has another God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trial, signs, wonders, war, by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? And what's the answer? No. None. It's unparalleled. It's an intervention of the power of God in human history. It's amazing. And what's the punchline of verse 35? You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. He is the unparalleled God of power. And he did what he did so his people would know that he was that unparalleled, incomparable God. God intended that this life-changing understanding of him would impact the way they lived with dependence, humility, and obedience. Third example, 2 Kings 19, 32 to 36. God delivered Hezekiah in Jerusalem from the Assyrian Empire. Because the Judean king Hezekiah had stopped paying tribute and was throwing off the yoke of oppression of the Assyrians, he uh, got in trouble. And so Sennacherib, the new king, decided he's going to come and put them back in their place. And after time, as he put out the fires throughout his empire, when he took the throne, they, he comes storming into the region, determined to violently subjugate Jerusalem and Judah. Here is the bad news, humanly speaking. In general, the Assyrian army defeated almost every enemy they attacked. Like a 100 to zero win record. And in this case, Sennacherib and his main officer thought that Yahweh was like all the other powerless, empty windbag gods they'd encountered so far who couldn't defy their authority, but they were in for a big surprise. Listen to what Yahweh said through the prophet in verse 32 to 34. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria, the powerful king of Assyria. 
He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp against it. He will go back in the road that he came and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. And this is not one of those stories where the promise big and delivered nothing and God disappeared and they got crunched. Now look at the defeat and death of Sennacherib eventually. Verse 35, that night, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. According to my understanding of Assyrian history, it's just the only city that the Assyrians attacked and didn't conquer. Now think of what we've learned about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, relating to his power. He spoke the entire universe, including the earth, into existence. He delivered his chosen people from the clutches of Egypt, one of the most powerful empires of that time. He wiped out the threat represented by the Assyrian power and their king. And all this he brought to pass exactly what he promised. He's totally powerful and strong. He's the incomparable God of power. But he's also totally faithful and dependable, reliable. And I'm just read some verses here with just very few comments. There's more I could do, but I'm told there's a trap door here that'll drop me. Uh, no, that's not true. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. Joshua 21, 45. Not one of all of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. The word faithfulness is not in that verse, but what else do you walk away with when you think that everything that God promised took place? Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 33, 4, for the Lord of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Every single action God takes is sure and steady. Every word he speaks is always good and true. Psalm 36, 5. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. God's faithfulness is immeasurable. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. So he's totally powerful and strong. He's totally faithful and dependable. And then the third thing about who God is is he's perfectly humble. What's humility? Again, lots could be said, but humility can be defined as a place of entire dependence on God. Do you see how these two words are kind of interrelated? Humility, one person has written, is the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make the way for God to be all. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. 
And so when you see how God is so great and amazing and incomparable and powerful and dependable, it, we're kind of dwarfed. You put Mike Grisanti next to that picture of who God is that's found in the Bible, and it's not impressive. In the end, we, we see humility defined best as to look to Jesus. In Zechariah 9.9, the prophet predicts a, an important future event, talks about rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Matthew 21, 1 to 10, that prediction is fulfilled in detail with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm not going to read the whole, all 10 verses, but Jesus has the disciples go to um, Bethphage to, to get a, a donkey and a colt tied there and tie them and bring them to me. And then it says, Quoting a verse, then the disciples went, they did what Jesus said, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats on the colt. People are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on the way down the, the Mount of Olives. Now, now think about this. This is the God of God's Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. This is not the glitz and glamour you would expect for the king of the universe. You'd expect a white steed, you know, bling all over the horse, trumpets blaring, pointing to that person, but that's not how Jesus operates. It isn't about him, ultimately. It's about the message he brings and the death he will provide. Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, all of you take up my yoke, Jesus says, and learn from me because I am, and this is the powerful God of the universe in human flesh. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for yourselves for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a shared yoke. With his disciples, Mark 10, 42 to 45 is the punchline. I'm gonna read a few verses before that. Uh, there, there are two disciples, the quiet guys, the th sons of thunder, you know, wherever they go, the ground is shaking. And they, they go to Jesus the sons of Zebedee, James and John, approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. And Jesus wisely asked, what do you want me to do for you? And he answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And here's Jesus' reply. He knew what kind of leadership they wanted. He's gonna pop that bubble. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, their people. And the men of high positions exercise power over them, their people. But God's value system is different. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus points to one of his life principles, humility, even to the point of death. Philippians 2, 5 and 11, especially verse 8, but in verse 5, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who assumed the form of a slave, verse 7. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross on our behalf. Jesus practiced humility in life and death. So, so far in our looking at who God is, 
God is powerful, God's dependable, and God is humble. And what should that amazing reliability of God trigger in our hearts, his power? It should make us willing and able to depend on the always faithful God. I want you to realize here, when we talk about being dependable, if I ask to be dependable upon a, a loser, yeah, right, forget about it. I've been burned before. But that's not the point here. When God challenges us to be God-dependent, God-anchored, God-sufficient, men and women, he asks us to depend on the great, powerful, reliable, and humble God of the universe. So God's amazing reliability should motivate us to be willing and able to depend on the always faithful God. How about the unparalleled power of God and the humility of Christ? We can be confident that that depending on God is always the best, and we must realize as we look to him and understand who he is, that there's no grounds for pride. Like Mike Christianity next to that portrait of God, it's loser winner. I mean, it just is, he is the one I should revel in. He is the one who has all strength. So let's give attention to what God expects of those of us in light of what he does and who he is. We've seen God's character, his actions. Uh, What about God's expectations and our relationship with him? The first one is dependence. We must depend on the dependable one. And what's dependence? I'm gonna give you three kind of starting points or rationales for Dependence. First of all, you think about dependence, it involves the clear recognition that God is who he says he is. He is he, think about this. He is great and awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing, and incomparable. He chooses to provide love, mercy, and grace, and wisdom on his subjects and followers. He provides lost sinners with life-transforming salvation and provides enablement for those who embrace that salvation. He's absolutely reliable It will bring to pass all that he promises. That's dependence. Second, trusting in or depending on this God should not be a periodic once in a while or last resort for his followers. Depending on God to be and to do what he has promised to be and to do should be our first and our daily resort. Depending on God doesn't mean that we have no personal responsibility. We should seek to make wise decisions, cultivate godly disciplines, practice other God-honoring virtues, but this is important. His power and enablement are what make our efforts eternally significant. It multiplies them. I'm a cracked clay vessel. Not that I celebrate the cracks but I celebrate the mercy of God. And I pray that God can use this cracked clay vessel by multiplying who he's made me to be. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And then third, and this is essential, because I think many of us don't get this, we must fully recognize that we don't have what it takes to please God or to pursue the God-honoring life he calls us to on our own We don't have that. And it's not that we can almost do what God wants. We just need a little divine nudge to push us over the top. What God calls us to, a life that puts his amazing character on display in so many areas of life and relationships, 
What God calls us to is so lofty that we cannot really live how he wants us to live without the enablement he provides us through his spirit. Praise God, he doesn't leave us on our own, longs to enable us to honor his name. I, I pray for myself and for those around me this prayer quite often. Lord, I do pray by your spirit you would help me be and do so much more that can be and do, than I can be and do on my own. And whenever I think about that, I think about various areas of my life, but I go to my, my sweet wife, Martha Ann, and I, I want to love her for God's glory. And I can love her better than Joe and Sam and Bob down the street. But that's not what I'm called to. I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church. And I, I realize, sorry, that I, I don't have what it takes as much as I want to honor God in that way. I, I, and I long to do that. I love Martha Ann with all of my heart. I need God to enable me. And I pray that he would help me be more than I can be in my own and to do more than I can do on my own. If we aren't figuring out that we need, desperately need his enablement, we're going to be limited in the impact we can have on our world. Let's not live like there's a puny God we have. Let's live like there's an awesome God that we have in whom we trust, on whom we depend. All right, so then uh, more quickly, uh, we need uh, to practice dependence in two areas. One is in salvation, praise God. Lots of verses there, of course, John 3 14 to 16, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 5, 24, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me, there's that belief, dependence, will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Lots more verses, but in daily life as well, for Christ-like living, facing challenges. And I'll just read a few of the verses I could read that I have here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all of your paths and it will guide you on the right paths. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices. I praise him with song. Psalm 37, three to five, trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord. He'll give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Trust, take delight, commit, trust. Psalm 56, three to four and 10 to 11. Three to four, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verses 10, 11, you can see how these two are related. They're like an inclusio over a section that's telling you what the section is about. Verses 10 and 11, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isaiah 12, 2, indeed God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid for Yah, short version of Yahweh, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Isaiah 26, 4, trust in the Lord forever. Because in Yah, the Lord is an everlasting rock. 
Among other things, we must trust God for, depend on him, for wisdom and direction with the many unknowns in life, for the Spirit's enablement for daily life to be and to do so much more than we could be and do on our own. We need to pray, depend on God for strength to honor God and make biblically driven choices in an increasingly hostile world, to have daily provision according to his will and his timing, to have grace and strength to walk down difficult paths, trusting him for his enablement. David, I want to briefly challenge you in particular with another area of life where you and I and the rest of us can practice dependence. We must pray boldly and regularly. Think about the challenge before and around us. We live in a self-sufficient and self-focused world. We often sadly default to telling ourselves, I've got this. I'll call you God when I need to. Also, we're busy and People in ministry, not just with trivial things, even in, but even important things, things of eternal significance, ministry. Sure, we pray here and there for people in need for challenging circumstances, but do we pray in boldness, even with a sense of desperation, seeking, seeing prayer to God is absolutely essential to, to invoke the intervention of the all-powerful God in a, in a situation before us. John Calvin wrote that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. So prayer is one of the key ways that true faith expresses itself. Heartfelt prayer demonstrates how much we really depend on him. And for all of us, and I'm talking to David here, because I wrestle with this. Sometimes we can allow busyness and fullness of life to crowd out something ultimate. Going to God with needs and challenges and hurts and opportunities because he's the one who can make a difference. So as you faithfully serve here at Calvary Bible, never become so self-focused, so busy, that prayer is an afterthought or something trivial or once in a while. Pray knowing that you desperately need God's intervention in whatever life situation you face. And as you pray, realize, praise God, that you are praying to your loving and all-powerful God who can do a, make a difference in a way nothing else can. Be a man of dependence on that God, praying big and resting in his will. So besides dependence, another value that we need to pursue having in our lives that would bring God honor is humility. There's a hard attitude of humility. It's inside. That's where it starts, really. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey of these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He wanted them to internalize that, that understanding of his power and their smallness compared to that and that he alone could do what needs to be done through their efforts. Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in what is right, teaches them his way. Psalm 34, 2, I will boast in the Lord, the humble will hear and be glad. Psalm, I'm Isaiah 66, 2. This is an amazing passage. Isaiah tells us what God says. My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the creator God, the all-powerful God, the mighty God. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably, favorably, favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. 
First Peter 5, 6, and 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your care on him, depending on him, because he cares for you. So how we think about things, the way we view ourselves, the, the way we pray must all be characterized by an inside-out humility because we understand who we are before the powerful and dependable and humble God. Then life conduct. So humility, we talked, I just said here something about attitude, hard attitude. It's also found in actions, life conduct. It's all about God and others. What are hard attitudes that show up in our words and our actions? Micah wrote, he has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and love, steadfast love, and to walk humbly with your God. John, John the Baptist got it. He must increase, I must decrease. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of rivalry or, rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The great reformer of the church, Martin Luther, wrote this, God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Now the point is, we, we have something that he's given us to bring to the table to offer him as, as the stewardship of his blessing but it's puny compared to what he could do through us. So as we reflect on the power and the faithfulness and humility of God, we should have a better picture of who we are before him, be motivated then to live the life he's called us to. There are scores of other passages we could have looked at here, but I hope you've seen with me how important these character traits are to God and why they should play a major role in our lives. Humility and dependence, as we've seen in various verses, are, are linked character traits, they go hand in hand. The person who is humble will be dependent on God. He realizes what he doesn't have and what he needs. The humble person realizes who he is before an all-powerful God. A, a person who regularly depends on God, God-anchored, God-sufficient, God-focused, God-enabled, will be characterized by humility. We should depend on God because we realize we don't have what it takes to live the awesome life he expects of us. And even though I, these truths are not something I've told you that are really new this morning, I think they're important. They're building blocks for a life that advertises a surpassing character, for a life of eternal significance. So, put you in the hot spot one more time, Pastor David. And again, when you point to somebody, you have three fingers pointing back at you. I realize that. David, as you know, the world, our world is full of people who are self-exalting, self-defendant, dependent, sorry, me first in their perspective. That's the world, I'm not saying this is David. Here's my primary challenge to you. Are you gonna purpose in your heart each day through the enablement of the Holy Spirit to be a God-dependent and selflessly humble man? We serve an awesome, incomparable, all-powerful, and perfectly faithful God. I exhort you to make him your daily focus and object of your trust. Who he is and what he has done in his doing should motivate us to be dependent and humble men and women. Each one of us here this morning needs to hear that same exhortation and encouragement for our lives are going to impact the world around us near and far. God, through his word, often convicts me about my need to keep growing and pursuing Christ-likeness as I commit myself to being humble and dependent on our great God. You never graduate from this class until you go to heaven. And I pray that you'll keep growing 
in these areas as well. And if you're here today, though, you don't know Christ as your Savior, God as Heavenly Father, you don't have confidence in the forgiveness of your sins, you don't have to leave without that confidence. Jesus, as a result of God's care for us, came to earth and took on human flesh and lived a sinless life, died a horrific death, rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven to his Father, his Father's right hand to provide us the foundation for salvation that's life transforming. And my prayer for you, if that's you, that you're, God's not your heavenly Father and Jesus isn't your Savior and you don't have confidence in the forgiveness of your sins, in fact, Lord willing, you feel the weight of those sins on your shoulders, that you realize that you don't have to stay that way, that, that God offers to take your feet out of the miry clay and to set them upon a rock and establish your going. The gospel can transform life. It doesn't make everything, all the problems go away or everything's perfect, but you have a relationship with this God of God and Lord of Lords. You have strength to pursue his glory and you have confidence in being in his presence. So talk to one of us. Can elders have name tags on? You saw Pastor Brett, you know him, and Pastor David, you may have needed, um, about that salvation if you're there. Don't walk away and not at least ask about it. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your word. I really feel dwarfed by who you are and what you do and even what you expect, but I thank you that it's not about me. I thank you that you can work in and through cracked clay vessels. And I pray that for each of us here who name Christ as our Savior, Christ's followers, that we would, through your Spirit, be able to be and do so much more than we could be and do on our own, to have eternally significant lives, lives that impact the world near and far as we grow in these building block areas of dependence and humility. May you be the one that receives the attention and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.